Welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. The Grace DC Network's Mercy Workshop was held just a week and a half ago. It brought together over a hundred people from nine different churches to spend half a day learning more about loving our neighbors and serving our city. The workshop included lectures and breakout sessions led by representatives from churches and nonprofits throughout DC. This week on the podcast, we bring you Pastor Glenn Hoberg's opening talk that kicked off the workshop. Good morning. Well, I am so glad to be here. I had a, uh, let's call it an exhilarating walk from Capitol Hill to the uh, church. I think my forehead is still frozen from that completely underestimated uh, the spring breeze um, that we were getting, but I'm awake and here now, and there is no place I would rather be than here. I am so grateful for this conference, so grateful for um, you being here. This encourages my faith personally. I need this. When I uh, came to uh, join in the planting of Grace DC 12 years ago, uh, it was as much for my faith as it was for anybody else. Uh, we're all walking in this together. And um, I'm thrilled that it's uh, our family of congregations. And for those of you as well that are coming from outside of the Grace DC community, we welcome you. Uh, we believe uh, in the capital C church. Uh, we also believe in God's uh, common grace and relationships in this city uh, through our organizations. Um, we are city positive. Uh, we are in and for the city. And that is what I've been asked to unpack for a few minutes. And uh, my goal is to present sort of the, the spiritual rationale, maybe the bigger picture motivation before we dive into details this morning. And I want to do it by way of uh, what is uh, the Grace DC uh, Network's purpose statement in and for the city, in particular how it crosses with mercy and justice. And at the heart of it is really what we would call our theology of place. When uh, you look at the core values of Grace DC, one of them is place. And it relates to our larger purpose. And what I'd like to do is just simply share four convictions about a theology of place that guides what we're doing. Conviction number one, place is essential to who we are as people. Place is essential to who we are. When you open up the Bible, you see it begins and ends in the same way in that God makes a place. He creates a habitat for us. And then in the last two chapters of the Bible, heaven descends on the place and it gets restored. And everything ha that happens in between happens in a place, a real place. And this way, the Bible is unlike other religious writings. When you read other religious writings, they may not necessarily need a place to happen. 
their spiritual sayings or writings. But the Bible story necessitates real places. The Red Sea, Shiloh, Mount Zion, Jacob's Well. Because the understanding is a God who not only makes a real place, but he enters into that place. So, the Christian faith understands that the human story takes place. Okay? Literally takes place. Uh, when you go to that uh, first chapter of Genesis, you see that the people are made of the place. Adam is called a man of dust, made right out of the ground, right? And we feel that when we go outside. Maybe we smell the flowers of spring. We hear, you know, water going under, uh, water at a brook going over some rocks. And there's something about it where we go, yes, this resonates deep with who I am. Second of all, we dwell in places. If you go to the book of Acts, there's a little statement where um, Paul is preaching in Athens, which was a city that was not monotheist, uh, polytheist. He's speaking to post-Christian people, as we would say, and he says that God determined the allotted period and boundaries for us all to dwell in. Now, of course, up to 100 years ago, that was abundantly clear because most people didn't go at a lot of places, to a lot of places. But it's still true today. I mean, no matter how much you travel, there will be a finite space, a place that you inhabit and dwell in the years that you have. And God has meant it to be that way. But what's interesting is what follows that. The verse says that he did this so that we might seek God, feel their way toward him, and find him. God means you and I to find him in our place. He's here, and this is where he reveals himself. Uh, we don't have to go up on the mountain. We don't have to go to Rome. We don't have to go to Mecca. God is in this place. One of the distinctive things about the God of the Bible. And he not only is in the place, he enters the place. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is born in Bethlehem, he's raised in Nazareth, he dies outside of Jerusalem. He is someone that lives in a finite area. This is sort of mind-blowing, that God has the Son of God on earth, and you think he could give him the superpower where he could kind of hyperspace everywhere, you know, zip here and zip there and zip there, but no, he keeps him in a relatively defined finite area. So if you ever feel guilty that you haven't traveled enough, don't, don't feel guilty, uh, right? And there's a couple things, I think, about this as we find God in our place um, that make it challenging. What makes it hard? Well, one is just the pace of life, right? I mean, we just live at a time where um, it's, things move fast. We scurry, we hurry over place, and it's changed even within the last couple decades. Last night, my uh, second daughter said, I want to watch uh, Ferris Bueller. Now, have any of you ever seen that movie? Now, you're, I didn't make her watch that because, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and I came up. She wanted to watch that. But what struck me was, you know, when I first saw that movie, it kind of moved really fast. But if you ever watch anything in the 70s and 80s, right, it's just like the dialogue slower. Even today, it's faster. Life moves quicker. That makes it a challenge to think about place. The other thing is transience. Many of us live in several places. Uh, 
You know, I, if I took a poll here, I'd imagine that a handful of you have lived in as many as five, six, seven places. You know, or maybe three, four. And what that does is it really creates what I'll call a hotel versus a hometown view where the, the place you dwell starts to feel like a hotel, sort of a generic place, instead of a place that you know, your very own home. And there is an element in the Christian faith where you're to have a pilgrim mentality. The book of Hebrews talks about uh, the great saints looking for a city that God would create, an architect. But bear in mind that that pilgrim mentality is never a low view of place. It's just looking for the final one. It's never a dismissal of where we are. Uh, maybe some of you remember that film from a couple years ago, Up in the Air, with George Clooney. And, you know, this guy that his whole life, he's not rooted anywhere, and he's not rooted in any relationships. And many times the Christian church does spirituality that way, up in the air. You know, we, we've always said in sort of our network that our major ministry events and our community groups happen within a defined place, not because we think it's so spiritual or more spiritual than a place across the river but we understand that our view isn't a Bible study could take place up in the air if you're really in the Bible Duke Pastor Meridian Hill used to say we want to have community groups those are our small groups that meet with open doors and open blinds and open windows so you're looking outside where you are so, transience doesn't mean that we sort of do things up in the air. And it, it boils down to this idea that we would be here as long as we're here. That's a little phrase that I, I throw around. Uh, I've heard over and over, some of you in this room have said this, I thought I was going to be in D.C. for two years, right? I thought I was going to be here for three years, and you've been here for six years. You've been here for seven years. We never know what God has. But a final challenge, I would say, is consumerism. It's easy to approach a city as if it's something you're trying to get out of it, right? Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a resume. Maybe it's an experience, a post-college experience. And I will say, as a church planter, it's, it's possible to approach a city that way, too. What I'm trying to get out of the city is a successful church and a successful name. I think all of us are affected by it. And it raises a question for us, right? Should I invest? And the answer to that through the Christian faith is yes, at least for two reasons. One, because of the great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. That's why we should invest. But actually, it's the best thing for you. When we lack a theology of place, when we forget that place is essential to who we are, we're the ones that lose out. And what we lose out on is deep connection. Uh, it's not by coincidence that the people I have found that have the best experience in our community are the people that dive into the city the most. The people that have the best, you know, friendships and the best experience, quality of life, are those that haven't had one foot in and one foot out, but they've actually, they've, uh, they have uh, dove into the city and so I think it's one of our best chances to have a good time here together. So conviction one, place is essential to who we are. Second of all, conviction two, God expects us to be thoroughly engaged in our place. Um, when you read those first chapters of the book of Genesis, God not only creates the heavens and the earth, he creates a garden 
Now, one day it'll be spring in D.C. And as it becomes spring, you will begin to see gardens, right? And gardens are always evidence of intentionality, authorship, and vision. If there's a garden, you know there was a gardener behind it. And the same thing God intends for our places when he said to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, develop it. He was saying, I want you to approach it like you're cultivating a garden. Now, you can't garden from a distance, right? I have a little back stoop that looks out. The funny, funny thing about this, when we bought our place, uh, they advertised that there was a, uh, there was a back porch. You know, and so I, I opened up the kitchen. I walked out, and I saw, like, this mud patio. And I was like, where is the porch? Oh, I'm on the porch. It was, it was the stoop, right? But I can't garden from that stoop. You have to get down. You've got to get your hands dirty. You have to look at how the soil's doing. I'm giving myself a lot more credit for gardening than I really have. But the point is, you know what I mean. You've got to get down there, get your hands dirty. And what does that mean for us? One, it means that we learn the story of our city. Every city has a story. Cities are like people. You got to get to know them if you're going to love them. And so we've always wanted to be people that come in and understand this unique city. There is no city like this city. I mean, it's got all these different layers, right? On one hand, it was a cow pasture, basically, and the nation's capital got thrown on top of it. But there was also an historic city that grew you know, after the great migration that happened in the 19th century, D.C. became the first primarily African-American city and had a burgeoning middle to upper class that created, if you've heard of the Harlem Renaissance, the D.C. Renaissance actually preceded it. You know, Howard University, the music of Duke Ellington, amazing things culturally that were happening in this city, all part of its glorious um, story that we get to learn. But part of the story of D.C., there's always been uh, a tug between two projects. One is the project of the beautiful city, and the other is the project of the just city. And you can read about this if you read about city planning throughout D.C. It's always been this thing, the idea of we want to create the beautiful capital, but there's also, I, I, will, also, I will say that when I first moved to D.C., the view of the capital from East Capitol was very different than it was from North Capitol Street. Right? So beautiful, just city. And as people of faith, we understand that the two go hand in hand. In God's eyes, the only beautiful city is a just city. We have to remember these things as we move together. But a couple things I think this does as we engage in our place. One is, um, how do we learn the story? Well, one is from our longtime residents. Uh, these folks are really historians. When I moved on to my block, I heard two different stories about my street. One was from some neighbors that have lived here for 12, you know, they were, had been there 12, 14 years before me, and said, uh, I said, tell me about the block. And they said, oh, it was terrible. Crack house here, crack house there. But when I talked to my longtime neighbor who'd been there for 50, 60 years, he said, oh, this has always been a good street. Two different views there. I think for him, someone who had stayed and labored for the flourishing of that block he saw the good in it. He saw the beautiful things that had happened, what God had done. Uh, the other is, you know, we, we sort of read up on the city. We become students of the city. 
in our staff meetings, uh, we'll do this thing where we might have one of our staff members pick a part of the city and educate us on it so we can learn about its history and what's happening. We have to give time to the city, uh, just like we give time to relationships. And we also want to enjoy the city. Isn't it true that uh, the things we enjoy we study effortlessly? Maybe you have some sort of interest, whether it's, you know, March Madness, basketball, whether it's music, but it's no labor to read and study that stuff because you enjoy it. The more we enjoy our city, the more we will study it. And it also means developing what I would say is a local versus a tourist mindset where uh, we, we want to come here in a way where uh, we're not just passing through, uh, where we're really trying to understand all the parts of the city. And today is such a wonderful opportunity for that. D.C., when I first came here, I said, you know, it's really the tale of two cities. Uh, it may be more than that. But we want to be folks that when we uh, give our friends a tour, it's not just down the National Mall. And that's beautiful. I love walking up and down the National Mall. But we're taking them to other parts of the city to tell the story. And as we do, we'll see not only the beauty, but the brokenness. Um, in the first and last chapters of the Bible, the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible, there's something missing. Does anybody know what it is? Sin. <laughs> Sin is missing. Right. From the third chapter all the way to Revelation chapter 20, brokenness. And that's the period we're living in. Right? As much as we wish that weren't the case, that's what we're in. And God recognizes this in his book. This comes from the book of Isaiah, and he's reflecting on what's happened to Jerusalem. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Now, we can see ruin in our city, right? Uh, desolation, whether it be economic desolation, violence that occurs, negligence of the place. You can basically look at a map of the city wards, and, you know, they have these maps every now and then where they'll let you know where the resources are, where the money is, where the jobs are. Um, we see the same thing in our city, whether it be homelessness, whether it be um, the crime rate. And there's a temptation, I think, um, to want to live in Shangri-La while you're also living amidst the brokenness. <laughs> I'm just that way. You know, I, I, I love comfort. I'm an idealist. I love to be happy. <laughs> and so there's a possible way that you can live in a city and sort of carve out your little bubble, right? And just sort of traffic in the areas where things work for you. And as the church, we want to be people that say, no, we're going to be engaged in every part of the city, not only the places where it celebrates, but the wounds that it has. So let me more quickly hit these last two points to talk about our role in that. Conviction number three, we cry out hopefully for our city. Cry out hopefully for our city. At the end of that passage I read to you, which described the ruin of Jerusalem, this is what the people say. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? 
And so you hear it, you have the people raising up their cry to God for their city. They're what you might be called priesting for the city, uh, just like Abraham did for Sodom, as Jonah didn't want to do for Nineveh. When, when you read the story of Jonah, right, the runaway prophet, God says, go to Nineveh. It was a very wicked and broken place. He didn't want to preach there. Uh, he runs away. You know, it's part fear, but it's also part self-righteousness. Because at the end of the book, what do we find out? God decides to be gracious to Nineveh, and Jonah gets mad at him and says, I knew you were going to be gracious. I knew you were a forgiving God this way. He gets mad at him. But this is God's reply to him. What does he say? God says to Jonah, you know, should I not pity that great city? He has the same heart for our city. It guards us, I think, from getting our own sort of burr in the saddle for the city, right? Our own anger and complaining. Uh, I, I was feeling that complaint even on the way down there. I was thinking, why is this city so windy? It's not that windy. But I was like, why, why did they build it in a way where, you know, the wind is like hitting me all the time, you know. And I'm like, this is like as close as you can get railing against the maker, right? And I was like one step away of, you know, why did you make wind like this to assault me when I'm going to talk about mercy? Um, so, you know, pity, compassion, and pity doesn't mean paternalism. It means like deep heartfelt compassion. Um, I, there was an op-ed written a couple weeks ago in the Post, and it was about homelessness. And the writer said, okay, what we're finding out is in the six years of inclusionary zoning, there have only been six condos that have sort of been bought and sold, sold under that initiative, and they've been sold to people that make at least 70000 so obviously the inclusionary zoning thing is not working as we hoped uh, with 700 homeless families in the district. And then if you're not a family, the waiting list is even longer. Um, but this is what she wrote. With about 1,000 people moving to the district every month, we simply cannot morally continue to be a city that helps only a handful find an affordable place to live. Now, I have no idea if this writer has faith or not, but you hear a moral complaint crying out. The church needs to be the community that leads that cry, crying out to God, uh, whether it be foster care, whether it be uh, joblessness, whether it be the complacent of the greed, uh, rather the complacent of the greedy, whether it be AIDS, whether it be abortion, whatever it would be, the church leads the cry to God means two things. One, we need to be emotionally involved in our city. We need to allow it to touch our heart. Uh, God does this. This is what God says to Israel as they cry out to him. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as a brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Now he's talking immediately 
about Jerusalem there. But the land always represents more in the Bible. It's the broader idea of the earth is Lord and everything in it. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, heaven's coming to earth. So there's a bigger view in mind here about the way God views the, the place. And what did you hear there? God talks about the place as a husband talks about his wife. That's how emotionally involved God is in the place. He talks about it as if it's his spouse. And so you and I need to have that sort of love affair with our city to develop that sort of emotion toward this place. And I know, you know, that takes time and it takes many steps. But that's the goal for us together. Emotionally involved, but we want to be hopefully involved. Um, because who we're crying out to? God is way ahead of us. It's not like we're carrying this burden for D.C. and going, oh, catch up with us, God. You know, won't you, won't you care? Won't you do something? God is like way out in front. He's going like this. Come on. And he's delighted for every step that we're taking. I promise you, God is delighted in this gathering this morning. Every step we take, he's thrilled with. But he is ahead of us. He is the God of hope. He is the God that feels more passionately about D.C. than you and I would ever God hasn't forsaken this city for a moment, right? He, he, he has been committed to it. The presence of churches for decades, and now, you know, we've joined in the fun in recent years. And that helps us, I think, when we feel so overwhelmed. As Joe said, the, the more you decide to sort of stay, you know, the D.C. roller coaster, and if you're graced downtown, you've heard me say this, the D.C. roller coaster is basically optimism to cynicism, Right? And people that typically move into D.C. want to change the world. And so there's this great up and down thing. But how do we avoid that? Well, it's our God who is hopeful. And we take heart that many more people are doing stuff than us. Uh, when I was growing up, you'd stop at a rest stop, and they'd have these maps with little lights, you know, where you could push the button, and it would light up like what part you were, and push the button. Well, you know, if we push the button in this city, you would see God is doing stuff all the time. I mean, through all these, the other day I was sort of bummed out as I was thinking about the homeless problem in the D.C. hospital and all these folks there. And then someone mentioned, oh, don't you know so-and-so church is doing ministry there? I was like, it, it lightened my load. I felt better about that. But last point, conviction number four, we seek to be a redeeming presence. Okay, so Israel is uh, not living faithfully before God, and he allows them to sort of reap what they sow, and they end up being uh, conquered and trafficked and abducted by Babylon. Okay? They're taken away to Babylon. You can imagine they're not in a good mood. Uh, they're not happy about that. That's uh, not a fun thing for anybody. They lost their home. They lost their livelihood. They lost their city. They've lost their jobs. All that stuff, Right? Now, you can imagine they're not in a good mood, and you can imagine God might rise up and say, those terrible Babylonians, I know right now you're having to be disciplined, but we'll get them. We'll get them. So I want you to basically work for their demise. Instead, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's what God says to Israel when they're carted off in this city. Now, the Babylonians had sort of an ingenious way that they would subdue people. They didn't beat them and chain them. They actually would assimilate them. They would allow them to work and live and play, and they sort of would just breathe in the air and breathe in the life, and they would lose their edge. That's how they would, you know, subdue people. And I think there can be a similar temptation for you and I. It's easy to come into a city, especially, you know, D.C. is just sort of growing on the most popular city list. You know, newer world-class restaurants. I live on Capitol Hill. You know, the, 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 the best restaurant, I think, in Bon Appetit was voted, right, is like right on Capitol Hill now in the country. The line is like, how, you know, you can never eat there. The line is, maybe you can, a few of you, I don't think I'll ever be able to eat there. They're just blocks and blocks of people waiting to go into this place. But, you know, it's easy for you and I to be tempted just by the perks and lose the prophetic edge. So, one, we need to see our city in terms of shalom and not as a playground. Uh, shalom is communal welfare in every direction. We're looking for that sort of welfare, not just amenities. Two, we're told in that passage to have a long-term mentality because he says build, plant, raise, and then there's a couple generations mentioned. Now, some of you, you may come in and say, I'm at grad school, and even if I wanted to stay, I might not be able to stay. Or I'm in the military, and I've got... That's fine. You can be here as long as you're here. You can plant, build, and grow as long as you're here. You know, none of us needs to feel guilty about, and none of us really knows where God is going to call us. I thought I was going to spend my years in Boston until I got old, and I'm in D.C. But the point is, uh, it's this long-term mentality we want to have. Thirdly, and lastly, we want to have a personal view of the city. The Lord calls his people to be personally engaged in Babylon, in their city. I think that means a couple things. One is that we don't view D.C. as a problem to be fixed. Um, there is a sense, again, I think, I have found that a good part of the demographic of the city, growing demographic, not all of it, and in the church, tend to be folks that do accomplish and want to solve problems. Now, there's a good part of that. But, you know, the backside is you can treat people like they're problems to be solved. We depersonalize things. And I mentioned this at Grace Downtown a couple weeks ago. I met with a group of D.C. pastors. I'm part of this D.C. pastors planters group, which is very encouraging. And our last meeting was about racial reconciliation. And uh, one of the guys that led the talk was an African-American pastor, Frazier, who has been here way back in our first Love Your Neighbor conference. And what he said was so challenging <laughs> because the conversation began to talk about the issue. We started talking about the issue of race. And he said, maybe let's not do this. Let's talk about this, our relationships. <laughs> let's start there because that's really what it's, that's, it's not a problem. It's this, right? And that's the way we as a community of faith 
do this. I've been so encouraged by our mercy team and our diaconate in the way that they interact with people that have need. Because you don't feel like a problem to be fixed. You feel like I have a fellow peer before me who has their own needs, who's wanting to help me with my need. And uh, one of our sisters on our mercy team has talked repeatedly how one of our homeless women just ministers to her with the truth of the gospel and encourages her. It's a personal view. Uh, we're looking for reconciliation of to God and to one another, and then that will mean our city because cities are full of people. Um, the other thing is we realize that things change one person at a time. Um, I, I would love to have time to tell you the story of my block and how one man who began to take in our packages basically changed our block. Um, and the way and, and the way they change person by person, but they change by very small ways, like shoveling, sweeping, helping someone out. And the way this thing grew to break down walls and relationships and culminated, ask me about it if you want to hear about it, but it's a great story. Uh, and lastly, success. This is what really got me. The Lord says, as you work for the success of your city, you will prosper. That's what he says to Israel. He says, you know, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That means... Unless D.C. succeeds, we don't succeed. So most people I know come here and they want to succeed. But they don't think the city needs to succeed. My neighbors need to succeed. So this is the mindset that we're cultivating if we want to have a success mindset. So four convictions, place is essential to who we are. God expects thoughtfully engage our place, cry out hopefully to our city, and then seek to be a redeeming presence. That's what I'm going to leave you with.